Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the thuggish behaviour of the most popular Republican politician other than Donald Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, whose latest stunt is to fly Venezuelan refugees from Florida to dump them on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, where former President Obama took his summer vacation. A leading culture warrior and practitioner of the politics of hate, DeSantis's trolling has been met with the politics of love by the residents of Martha's Vineyard, who have shown up in droves donating clothes, food and toys to help the pawns in DeSantis's cynical game of grandstanding to MAGA Republicans, which Governor Abbott of Texas also does, having recently dumped busloads of immigrants at the doorstep of Vice President Harris's Washington residence. Joining us is Michael Binder, professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. He is the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida, and we will discuss the fascistic posturing of DeSantis, who is Ivy League educated, but aggressively campaigns on anti-intellectualism. Then we'll look into the all-night negotiations between the rail companies and railway workers' unions, brokered by Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, that averted a nationwide rail strike, which would have cost the country $2 billion a day. Joining us is Rachel Premack, the Editorial Director at Freightwaves, which reports on supply chains, logistics and transportation. She writes the newsletter Modes, and her latest article at Freightwaves is We Haven't Completely Dodged a Disastrous Rail Strike, Rail Workers Say. Then finally we'll speak with labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein, distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He is the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography on the labor leader Walter Ruther and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in a Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. We'll discuss how railway strikes in 1916 brought about the eight-hour workday and why a rail strike might be a good move to invigorate labor and inspire young workers to join unions. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. He is the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Bender. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And the fact that you live in uh, the state of Florida, uh, I'm not holding that against you. And as much as Governor uh, DeSantis is behaving in such a disgraceful manner. And it really is a stark dichotomy here in this country, the difference between the politics of hate and the politics of love, because he's just sent busloads of, or plane loads of Venezuelan emigrants to Martha's Vineyard, where he's sort of dumping them, saying, well, you're a sanctuary state. Uh, welcome to greener pastures for your undocumented emigrants. But interesting enough, the people in Martha's Vineyard are rallying around and taking care of these people, providing food and clothing and toys for the kids, so much so that they've created traffic jams at the drop-off places. So I'm sure DeSantis is loving it. Every time you see him on stage, he's flanked by big, burly, white police officers. Complete sort of fascistic uh, optics that he has. So am I interpreting this in the right way in terms of the politics of hate versus the politics of love? I mean, I certainly think it is a way to look at it. Uh, The other way to look at this is there are, in this case, 50 people, presumably there's more depending upon the state you're in, that are caught up in politicians doing stunts to generate media attention. And from the perspective of these immigrants, you know, it, it's a, a terrible circumstance for them generally, although these particular ones seem to be doing okay. They've been embraced by the community. We'll, we'll see what this means for them long term. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but I certainly think the response has been, as you indicated, you know, a, a very positive one up there. And perhaps maybe that might reduce these types of political stunts. And that's really all this was because if it was meaningful and not meant to be a political stunt, they wouldn't have sent a videographer there. They wouldn't have been talking about this. It would have been done at three in the morning and not talked about. So uh, hopefully these types of things reduce and we make real efforts to solve these policy problems. Well, DeSantis's messages indicate he's proud of what he's doing, you know. So, and conversely, the local politician, uh, Massachusetts State Representative Dylan Fernandez, who represents the Martha's Vineyard, said that the move by DeSantis is an evil and inhumane plot to use human lives, men, women, and children, as political pawns. So, is this just a reflection of what's happened to the GOP in the sense that DeSantis is definitely the front runner if Trump somehow steps aside or ends up in a orange jumpsuit or a, or a straitjacket. So, I mean, it's a party that doesn't have any programs, doesn't have a platform, doesn't have any plans, just has trolling the libs and owning the libs and, you know, basically spewing snide hatred. So is that why he's so popular? Is this is what's happened to the GOP? So... I don't know that I would go quite as far as to say the entire Republican Party is devoid of policies or platforms or anything of that nature. 
But what I will say is these types of issues, these divisive issues where there are small groups, and I use the term minority, not in a racial or ethnic term, but in a where there's a minority of people affected and the great majority of folks are not impacted by. So I'm, I'm talking about circumstances like the one we're discussing today, but also if you think about some of the other bills that he's trumpeted uh, and gotten passed in the state legislature, uh, there's a, a parental education rights or don't say gay bill, depending upon your perspective, where you're really targeting groups of people that are in the vast minority and the majority is, I don't want to say attacking them, but certainly making them feel as if they're attacked. He's doing that to such great success amongst his base. And they are issues that his base will see a sliver of truth in and they glom onto this because, listen, it's true. This country has a lot of people coming across our borders undocumented. And we don't, as a country, have a plan, have a platform, have a, have a process in place that I think anybody would agree that is good. We also have a circumstance where there are different people with different ideologies, sometimes antithetical to the majority's viewpoint. The, the Christian right conservative groups are because of the basings and teachings of the Bible, oftentimes, particularly, how do I put this politely, at, at best opposed to or unsympathetic toward uh, people with different sexual orientations. Uh, they don't understand transgender. But these are issues that infect people, just not large enough pluralities of people to really affect the Republican Party's voting stances. And these are issues that DeSantis and many in the Republican Party are going after. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Binder, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision making, direct democracy, American politics and public opinion. And he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Well, that's the point, isn't it? It's grandstanding because it's not an issue. It's not a clear and present danger. There are very, very few transgender youth. And it's just cruel to beat up on, on such a vulnerable minority, isn't it? I, I mean, I would think so. I, I But these are issues that still... Are, are real issues, right? Immigration's a real issue. He wasn't yeah, dealing no, I, with I get that real for sure. Way. Yeah. And and you know, you know, how we deal with gender, how we deal with sexual identity as a country is meaningful because there are policy outcomes that that matter. Now he might not be dealing with them in ways that are, are positive or ways that attempt to implement policies to solve situations. Uh, but he's certainly talking about issues that are that are meaningful issues. Well, he's what a Harvard grad, right? Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Listen, guy. The guy is is well educated. Uh, took advantage of some of this country's best universities. You know, Harvard, Yale, uh, law degree. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, presumably, he's smart enough, and has been introduced to. Uh, enough of the varying sides of these issues that he does not necessarily think they're that one-sided. 
So this is very calculated. And But is he as a person, as he appears to be, is he a, a thug? I mean, that's the way he comes across with all with those phalanxes of, of police behind him. It's almost like a flashback to Huey Long. I mean, is he going to take the country in a fascistic direction if he... Uh, he gets the nomination if Trump steps aside, and and there are enough angry people out there that respond to his hatred and division. Is that what's in store for us? Uh, he's done nothing to suggest otherwise, uh, and in fact, really, that the first year that he was in office in, in Florida as governor, he reached across the aisle. He was dealing with issues of import. And, and the environment in Florida and really had several big issues that crossed party lines and had really big numbers in popularity. Uh, after the, or midway through the COVID pandemic, he shifted, you know, he kind of initially he was big on the shutdowns and, and all of that. And then he shifted away from it and he's kind of doubled down in, in Trump world and Trump land and his cult of personality. And yes, the dangers of the cult of personality and preaching to that you know, fascistic right wing, uh, there are implications for that in how you run government, and there are imp- implications for that to what happens to minority groups. And again, not racial or ethnic minorities necessarily, but people that are in the minority on a particular issue, uh, there are real threats to those folks uh, going forward. But in politics, one of the issues that that both the Democrats and the Republicans always seize on is education, education, education. Well, DeSantis is absolutely destroying the public education in the state of Florida. Teachers are quitting in droves. They're among the lowest paid teachers in the country in any case. And my understanding is that there's such a shortage that DeSantis is recruiting unqualified teachers from from. Uh, you know, right-wing Christian evangelical churches in the military. Is that true? It's not untrue. Uh, I will say that there's a teacher shortage across this country in all states, and it is here as well. Florida does tend to be particularly underpaid. Uh, they A couple of years ago, they did something to move the starting pay up a little bit, but it didn't do anything for teachers that had been here, been here for a period of time. Uh, and there is a move to potentially bring in folks that have not necessarily gone through the qualification process and gotten the appropriate credentials. Uh, one of those being the, the former law enforcement or military folks, uh, another potentially being uh, people in you know, evangelical churches to potentially teach in charter schools, which are a big push here in Florida and have less oversight and have a lot more freedom in them to teach what they want, when they want, how they want, that may or may not correlate with any state or or federal standards. Uh, And there are absolutely concerns going forward about what this means, uh, the institution of different style tests, the frequency of those tests, uh, and, and what parents are, are thinking about it in the public school system. Well, there's been incidents of book burning, hasn't there? And hasn't DeSantis empowered activists among parents to have veto power? 
Yep. And he also, for the first time in, in this state's history, got actively involved in endorsing candidates for school board races ac across the state. And he was pretty successful in doing so. Uh, and, and those folks, again, if there if there's a word in a book that they don't like, their their goal, their you know history has been to let's just remove each book from the library. Uh, again, I'm not sure that's the right answer. Uh, you know, I, I think we can all agree that there are certain things that a six-year-old probably shouldn't be reading. But you know, if you believe in parental involvement, maybe that's the parent's job, not the ability of the school system to shut everybody out from from dealing with those things. Uh, but but this is an issue that DeSantis has seized on. He quickly seized on the anti-mask mandate thing and, and rode that to some success. Uh, the, the question is, how much does his, this involvement carry over and what are once some of the implications from some of these policy changes that might sound nice on the outside, once they actually get implemented, what does that mean? So, for example, here in Florida, uh, particularly in Duval County, we've stopped teaching uh, sex ed in our school system this year because of that don't say gay bill and the fear of the reprisal of losing state funding for the district. Uh, those are real implications. Uh, you know, what happens, you know, a week, a month, a year or two or three from now when maybe teen pregnancies are up and whoa, well, now we have an abortion ban in Florida. And well, what does this mean? You know, so there's a lot of stuff that sound that might sound nice to some of these folks, but they haven't necessarily thought through all the potential implications down the road. But it does seem to highlight the cynicism of DeSantis, given that he's well-educated with an Ivy League education, Harvard and Yale, etc. And yet he's sort of encouraging the, and there's nothing more anti-intellectual, surely, Michael, than burning books, right? Oh, no, he's very much beating the drum of anti-intellectualism, arguing, you know, a, a against higher education for in a lot of circumstances. And I mean, DeSantis isn't the first governor in Florida to underfund education. But but part of those reasons are twofold. Uh, it's not just that that's a, a popular message amongst the populist right. But here in Florida, right, we have an enormous entity of retirees. You know, retirees don't have kids in school. You know, they don't like high taxes for they don't like expensive property taxes going to school districts like you might have in the Northeast. So this is a circumstance where if you don't want to pay for things, well, guess what? You're going to get have to pay less money to teachers. You're going to get teachers that are leaving, that are going into the private sector, especially when they can make twice what they're making as a teacher and not have to deal with as much of the nonsense. So, Michael Bender, just in the last couple of minutes, you're circling back to dumping plane loads of Venezuelan immigrants uh, on Martha's Vineyard, and which Governor DeSantis of Florida has taken credit for. And we, I framed it in the beginning of the interview as that the difference between the politics of hate coming from DeSantis and the politics of love coming from the people down in Martha's Vineyard who rallied to help these immigrants. So... If DeSantis, and by the way, Governor Abbott of Texas did a similar thing recently where he dumped busloads of uh, immigrants right on the doorstep of the residence of the vice president, Kamala Harris. So this kind of trolling is happening, not just with DeSantis, but it does seem to reflect the, the way the Republican Party's priority is to fight culture wars as opposed to uh, have constructive policies. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, we don't know how the American people are going to vote. 
And if they were to vote this guy in, assuming that Trump somehow gets out of the way, if he became president, he would not be president of all of America. He would be president of half of America, right? I mean, there's, he has contempt for people like me and anybody that's on the left or the liberal progressive side. He's at war with us. So isn't that a pretty sick situation that we're, we may end up with a president who literally hates or has contempt for half of the people of the country? I, I, I certainly think that you would not see the type of acceptance speech that maybe a Joe Biden or, or, or George Bush put forth when he reached out after winning to reach out to all of America. I, I don't envision that from Ron DeSantis. On the flip side, you, you alluded to elections. One thing that's really fascinating is uh, the Hispanic vote in Florida. It, there's a growing community of Venezuelans, uh, ex- exponentially so in the last you know five, six, seven years. And he, the Republicans have done well corralling those votes. Uh, it is not clear to me, however, that he made a, a strategically smart decision by picking on Venezuelans, which who are typically fleeing, you know, what is viewed as a communist dictatorship and coming to Florida. I'm not sure that I would have chosen those folks to go send to, to Martha's Vineyard. I think that was a mistake and potentially that could haunt them amongst that organization, amongst that group come election day. Well, Michael Bender, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. And he is the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the all-night negotiations between the rail companies and railway workers' unions brokered by Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh that averted a nationwide rail strike. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rachel Premack, who is the Editorial Director at Freight Waves, which reports on supply chains, logistics, and transportation. She has reported on Bon Appetit's culture of racism, safety concerns among pilots who fly for Amazon, and the 2019 trucking bloodbath. She writes the newsletter Modus. And her latest article at Freight Waves is, We Haven't Completely Dodged a Disastrous Rail Strike, Rail Workers Say. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rachel Premack. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And I thought that the intervention of President Biden and particularly the all-night-long Wednesday night meeting between the unions and the freight companies uh, that was brokered by the Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, uh, was successful, but you're suggesting maybe not. So uh, 
the deal has not been ratified and won't be ratified for what weeks or so. So where do we stand from what you're learning, Rachel? Yeah, so the tentative agreement released early this morning um, really concerned uh, the railroad conductors and engineers. These are the folks who are actually driving and maintaining um, trains while they're, uh, you know, going across the country. And they have definitely had, they're definitely the largest uh, subset of rail workers who are pushing against what rail companies have been looking to do in the past few years. And they were the biggest holdouts in, you know, making sure that there was some sort of agreement or labor agreement, because otherwise the plan was to have a work stoppage that could have begun as early as Friday at 12.01 a.m. So less than 24 hours before that could have happened, the Biden administration, as you mentioned, announced that rail companies and their unions had come to a tentative agreement. But the, the problem is that, you know, it's not quite cause for celebration yet because rail workers, uh, you know, the employees themselves have to vote on that agreement and confirm that, you know, that is the agreement that they agree to uh, work, have their union run by. So we still have to wait for uh, that vote to happen. It could happen, you know, next week. It could happen in a few weeks from now. It's not quite clear when, you know, this will actually happen. But until uh, union members actually vote in that agreement, we could still see some sort of rail strike. Well, apparently the, one of the main issues for the union, which is the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, BLET, was the lack of health care access to doctors. The, the leader of the union, Dennis Pierce, the president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, just before the agreement was made, uh, he said, all we're asking is folks to be able to go to a routine doctor's visit without pay, but they've been refused to accept our proposals. The average American would not know that we get fired for going to the doctor. This one thing has our members most enraged. We have guys who were punished for taking time off for a heart attack and COVID. It's inhumane. So is that been a central issue and has that issue been resolved? Yeah, so several railroads have uh, really cracked down on, on how much medical leave that workers could take, even unpaid medical leave. So the, the issue around that isn't so much access to doctors, but more around whether or not they can actually take time off to go see medical professionals if, if that's necessary for, for them. So we don't know the exact details of the tentative agreement so far, but you know, reporters from the Washington Post reported that uh, rail workers will receive one day of sick leave that is paid and a not yet reported number of un number of days of unpaid leave. So we still haven't seen all the details of this tentative agreement so far, but absolutely securing time off has been one of the main issues for, for rail workers in, in recent months. But my understanding that the freight companies over the years are trying to cut down the number of BLET employees per train. They even want to get it as low as just one person per train. I mean, that sounds extraordinary. But is that right? Yeah, so definitely an interest by 
most of the rail companies is to eliminate how many people are working on the trains and therefore eliminate labor costs. So in most trains, you will have one conductor and one engineer. And the way that this has been explained to me before is that you, you, the engineers are kind of in charge of making sure the rail cars are functioning and the engineer is more in charge of ensuring that the locomotive engine is functioning properly. So, um, you know, certain parts of the job of a conductor has been automated, but, you know, there's plenty of parts of running a train that cannot be fully automated. You know, you can say, oh, well, you know, we can, planes can fly by themselves. Like, why would we need a conductor to, to drive a train? But there are, uh, you know, workers tell me that there are certain specialized procedures that you, you need a person doing it, let's say, uh, driving up driving up an incredibly steep hill or parking it in like a more complicated rail rail yard. So the idea of completely getting rid of conductors would be challenging. And I think it would also raise some serious uh, safety concerns. And what is this other issue that's, that's concerning the unions? And that is the merger between two of the big uh, rail companies. Yeah, so um, certainly just reduced competition. We've seen more and more consolidation of the major class one railroads over the past 10 or 20 years. So, you know, the fewer options you have of places to work certainly means that the labor market gets that less competitive, or rather the market to be, uh, you know, an attractive place to work gets that much less competitive when you have when you have fewer companies, definitely. So what are the companies that want to merge and what's the role of Warren Buffett's com company? <laughs> so BNSF is the uh, one of uh, one of those major class one rail rail companies. And uh, we've seen we've seen particularly loud complaints from employees of, of BNSF. Uh, they had a very unpopular they had a very unpopular policy for employees who want to take time off for fatigue, who want to take time off for family emergencies or illness, essentially they would get penalized and, you know, get points added to their record of how much time they were taking off. So BNSF employees generally went from being on call 75% of the time to 90% of the time, sometimes even receiving calls while they were sleeping to come into work, um, you know, in the, in the next few hours when they were trying to rest. And union officials said, as a result of that policy, 700 rail, rail employees have left the company. And the company says that it ended this policy in June, but I've also heard that you know it hasn't completely gone away at the same time. So that is definitely, the, the BNSF policy has definitely been one of the most unpopular that I've seen in my reporting, but certainly other rail companies have you know, really been pushing workers to work longer hours and just basically spend less time away from home. And the the two rail lines that are emerging are uh, Canadian Pacific and KCS, Kansas City Southern. You know, these are these are two major rail rail lines, and that additional sort of mergers and reduced competition is definitely something that can uh, be harmful for rail customers as well as rail employees but surely there are safety issues out there i mean because the the freight 
that's carried across the country, I mean, a lot of it actually is from the Canadian tar sands, right? Because the pipelines down to the Texas refineries uh, were stopped by protests. So they're hauling a lot of uh, tar sands oil across the country uh, from Canada down to Texas. So aren't there safety concerns involved? And if you eliminate workers and automate, that doesn't sound that, sound that reassuring. No, and, and so many train hauls are toxic or dangerous chemicals like chlorine or, um, you know, tar sands, as you mentioned, just sort of these um, potentially hazardous chemicals. Um, you know, they also haul massive amounts of cars. So, it's, you know, that's very heavy equipment. Um, they're hauling coal. There, there's lots of really heavy, potentially hazardous equipment that they are hauling. So that is certainly one critique of this move to automate and to reduce crews is that that could lead to, you know, certain safety uh, concerns for sure. And already, you know, we do see reports of deaths and crews already being at risk. So it's, it's you know, one argument that someone who is in favor of automation would say is, oh, well, you know, there's already all these sorts of dangers that are happening on the railroads. Why don't we automate it and see if a machine would be, you know, better at doing this? But that's something that most workers, I think, would very much disagree with. Well, Amtrak, of course, has an arrangement, right, with the, the freight companies own the lines, right, and that they lease them out to Amtrak. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have the kind of high-speed rail that they have in Japan and Europe, right, because of this, the fact that the, the freight companies dominate and have priority, don't they, over the, over the tracks? Right. So passenger and freight rail certainly do share a lot of the same lines. And freight rail certainly commands more, you know, ton miles and overall movements than Amtrak does, for example. So they certainly do have more control and more say over how those networks are designed. And one kind of major way in which electrification of rail can is, is kind of barred is that in order to have fully electric trains, you have to have wires running overhead of the of the trains of the rail itself. Um, but that could block, you know, double decker trailers and you know make the trains themselves less efficient. So that's kind of one way in which we do see, you know, electric trains or some of these other sort of advancements blocked off. Well, as it happened, um, my um, brother and his wife and the traveling companions had uh, just about to take the Amtrak train from Los Angeles to New Orleans and <laughs> they had to cancel it and uh, yeah. rent, a, rent a car. <laughs> so uh, they're on their way. But I imagine the real problem uh, with Amtrak is these commuter trains, right? They have a lot of traffic between you know, the Acela and others. So that they must be breathing a huge sigh of relief, right, that there isn't a strike. Right. Absolutely. I mean, especially in the northeast of the U.S., there, there are certainly plenty of people who do take, you know, these long distance trains. But I from my understanding or perhaps just my assumption is that uh, the, the rail ridership in the northeast, especially that that Acela corridor between New York and D.C., that's really quite bustling. So for that to be shut down would certainly disrupt a lot of East Coasters uh, 
you know, weekend and, you know, work week next week. I actually had a friend who has a work trip to go to DC on Monday and she was actually kind of hoping that it would get canceled due to this uh, strike, but I had to tell her this morning and sorry, it looks like you're still going to work, uh, still going on your work trip next week. So I haven't gotten out of it yet, but yeah, the, the long distance uh, train route cancellations from earlier this week certainly disrupted a lot of, uh, a lot of people's plans. Well, we happen to have a president, don't we, uh, Rachel, that spent more time on trains than just about <laughs> any other American <laughs> in Joe Biden. That That's absolutely true. I mean, you know, I'm sure we could dig back to the 1800s and early 1900s and find someone. But yeah, I mean, President Biden has certainly made his name as the, as the Amtrak guy. I mean, I actually was at his station in Delaware last week, so it's a... It's, uh, it's a really great service. I mean, you know, if you're trying to get around the Northeast, I'm not not a big fan of having to fly everywhere. So there's definitely a lot of benefits to having, you know, a more robust rail system. But just, you know, the way that the U.S. is set up right now, it's not it's not it's not as common as we do see in you know Europe or Japan or other or other countries. So just in the last couple of minutes, Rachel, in terms of railway strikes, uh, this one, of course, seems to be averted, although you've talked to a lot of rail workers and members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen uh, that it's not really settled, uh, hasn't been ratified. But uh, at this point, most people are breathing a sigh of relief because with all the supply chain problems we have in this country, this would have been catastrophic to have the rail services shut down. But in the late 19th century, there were very, very incredibly significant railway strikes that were quite revolutionary. And out of those struggles came the eight-hour workday. So we have the railway workers to thank for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it is really fascinating kind of looking at how crucial, you know, rail is just for, for the nation. And it does make sense that we see you know, our federal government so involved, because I, I mean, it's hard to think of other industries where you would have the president or Congress or Washington just so involved in labor negotiations. But the fact is that without the railways, we do see so many parts of our modern society in threat. You know, you have 75% of new cars are moved by rail, you have what uh, wastewater plants supplied by uh, chemicals to, to clean and treat that water. So we have, you know, fresh water from our from our taps. You have uh, utility plants needing coal moved by rail. There's all these, without the rail system, you know, so, so much of our modern life is really at risk. So it, it is absolutely a really crucial group of workers and industry. Well, Rachel Premack, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And we've been speaking with Rachel Premack, who is the Editorial Director at FreightWaves, which reports on supply chains, logistics, and transportation. She has reported on Bon Appetit's culture of racism, safety concerns among pilots who fly for Amazon, and the 2019 trucking bloodbath. She writes the newsletter Modes, and her latest article at FreightWaves is We Haven't Completely Dodged a Disastrous Rail Strike, Rail Workers Say. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with a labor historian, on how a railway strike in 1916 brought about the eight-hour workday and why a rail strike might be a good move to invigorate labor and inspire young workers to join unions. Oh, trains and- 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography on the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and The State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Rights and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nelson Lichtenstein. Glad to be here. So, Nelson, the railway strike, at least it appears to have been averted uh, by intervention by the, the Secretary of Labor, who spent an, all of Wednesday night negotiating with the rail companies and the unions, and the president, Biden, of course, was actively involved as well. So that means that 115,000 railway workers um, may not shut down. I'm just reading from a a note that you sent me, the entire freight railway system idling more than 7,000 trains daily, disrupting supply chains and costing the economy more than $2 billion a day. So... That is, uh, I suppose, good news for the president and for the country in a way, but you make the case that maybe a strike would have been a good idea. So elaborate on that, if you will. Yes. yes. Uh, I mean, the, right. The, well, from Biden's, you know, particular political you know, perspective, he wants to avoid a strike because he doesn't want to get consumers upset and there'll be voters in November. But... Uh, this, this, this. I knew that the workers would 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 win. That the settlement would be good because the militancy of these workers, these railroad workers, was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, they had votes of ninety nine percent in favor of striking. Um, and the crucial issue uh, in in the in the, uh, the 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 dispute was not wages. They got a very substantial wage increase. That was that was baked into the cake. We knew that. The issue was the use of algorithms to uh, create uh, what's called flexible scheduling systems. These are flexible only for the management. For workers, they're chaos and, and, and really draconian. They call them draconian. They don't give time off. Uh, workers are on call for weeks at a time. It really it disrupts family life, etc. And so they were, they were against that. They were protesting that. They found that intolerable. And, and, and the reason they had these, these schedules and they're new, this new kind of scheduling, is because the railroads have laid off 25% of all their workers in the last seven years. And what that means is the burden of running the rails is, is put on the, the, the shoulders of the rest. And, and, and one way to do that is to make it practically impossible for workers to have any choice in what days they have off. So that's the, that was the issue. And the workers were very upset about that. But the issue is much broader than that, because that same kind of scheduling, uh, that same kind of you know use of algorithms to schedule workers at, at the times that management wants and not that's, that's good for family life or just a regular life, is true for millions 
of other workers in retail, in uh, fast food, uh, in 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 uh, uh, warehouses, uh, you know, and we, we heard about that at, at, at Starbucks and and and, and Amazon, etc. And so, really, these these uh, railway workers were were pushing back. They were unionized, unlike the workers, some of the other workers we're talking about, pushing back and saying, you know, we want a humane work schedule, and we, you know, we we that we don't want our lives to be twisted into a into a pretzel. Uh, uh, at the behest of management. Now, I think that, in fact, a, a strike uh, on, that, on that issue would be extraordinarily popular in the country as a whole, and it would demonstrate to the millions of, of young workers seeking to organize unions in, in Amazon, Starbucks, other places, that you know, if you, if you, the collective power of labor can accomplish great things. So I... I I'm in favor of a strike, and I'd be in favor, actually, even now, of rejecting this contract. I think the workers are in a very strong position, uh, and conducting a strike to really eliminate entirely, not just modify it or compromise, eliminate entirely the draconian attendance policy that the railroad management has put into effect over the last few years. So if they've gotten rid of 25% of the workers in the last seven years— they apparently were trying to uh, get rid of even more workers so that the trains would only have one person. I mean, it, it's just it's mind-boggling right. yeah, to think that these vast, right. powerful trains carrying, right. you know, tons and tons of freight and chemicals and tar sands oil and a lot of dangerous stuff. There's just one person in charge? That just well, seems... yeah, I mean, one or, you know, they are, right, I think it's maybe one or two, but I mean, but right, they've cut back uh, dramatically. And by the way, it's not just the workers who are pissed off about this. Uh, there was a congressional hearing a few months ago in which uh, grain uh, shippers, chemical shippers of chemicals, other bulk items were also complaining about uh, the management of the railroads uh, and their efforts. It's what they call it, precision scheduling railroading or something like that, which basically meant cutting back. On, on labor enormously and 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 forcing a kind of schedules on on the workers uh, that, that that were that were you know that were quite arduous and so it wasn't just the workers it was, it, it was the whole supply chain has become more fragile in railroads because of this cutback and what have the railroads done they they've had stock repurchases uh, they they tried to boost their 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 prices as a result of that um, uh, cutting back again on on labor uh, as a way of uh, you know cutting back on uh, expenses etc that sort of thing has taken place and it's taking it you know it's, it's not alone with the railroads um the in other words the burden of us of trying to to cut costs and create be more efficient is being put on the shoulders of the workers and certainly you know you, you, all the all the publicity about what's going on at amazon where you know the 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 use of algorithms has been made, taken to a you know a, a made a fine art but it means that you get turnover rates of 100% a year. And by the way, on the railroads, railroads used to be thought to be a lifetime job. But one of the one of the things that's happening now is enormous amounts of resignations on the railroads because workers find this 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 effort to put more work on them on their shoulders uh, and, and less time off uh, is also extremely burdensome. So there have been lots of uh, turnover rate that's also increased. Well, that in, that decreases efficiency. That decreases institutional knowledge and makes the supply chain even more fragile. So, Nelson, why is it, though, that we have 
some of the, I don't know, the worst train system in the country. I mean, it's it's basically the railways in this country are controlled by the freight lines and and the Amtrak and they get their sort of right. poor cousins. They get, you know, slim pickings. Um, so we don't have these high-speed bullet trains like they have in Japan or in yeah. France and across Europe. They're trying right. to do one here in California between L.A. and San Francisco, yeah. and it's going nowhere and costing a fortune. What's the problem? Why can't we have high-speed rail, which would be That's a good, yeah. you know, so beneficial? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, I mean, yeah, in most parts of the country, the Amtrak runs on the freight railway <laughs> lines, and, and, the, and that means that sometimes the Amtrak trains are delayed when the freight train goes by. Not, not the Northeast corridor, but it is true. Every, a lot of other places. Um, well, one thing is simply a lack of investment. I mean, it's true that in, that there are kind of zoning rules and and and, and environmental things that are slowing down the you know, uh, the California high speed train. Um, but but I mean, and there is there is an element of that. But basically, it's a it's a lack of investment and a kind of ideological hostility to it. At the beginning, of, in the in the in the stimulus package that the um, Obama um, administration passed back in 2009, there was money for like trains between like Milwaukee and, and uh, Madison or, or under the, uh, the uh, Hudson River from New Jersey to New York. And the, and the governors of, of these Republican governors of these states uh, uh, in New Jersey uh, and, and, and Wisconsin, Walker in Wisconsin, and um, they rejected it. You know, <laughs> they were kind of hostile. They rejected it. But, but mainly, I think it is the, the lack of investment. And it's, and it's been in a secular decline since the 1950s. Uh, even the big bill that, was, that Biden got passed is not enough to, to really uh, 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 jumpstart the, the construction of, of, of new rail lines. I mean, I think they'll be repairing old ones, but, but new ones. And this is just a, um, uh, and, and, and by the way, and when, when railroads and, and other companies, when right now the default um, strategy of any company when it has extra profits is, Stock buybacks, stock, stock buybacks, not reinvestment in whatever whatever they're doing, whether whether it's a, you know um, cars or, or or whatever. It's stock buybacks, and the railroads have been doing that as well. Money that could have been and should have been used for improving you know right of way and things of that sort. So, I mean that's that's contemporary American capitalism, uh, which um, you know sees uh, shareholder value as the really the only issue, not not just one of them, but the only the only uh, good that the companies produce. And so, so we've had like a trillion, you know, a trillion dollars of stock buybacks in the last year or two. Well, that money should, could have, could and should have gone to investment. So let's talk about the history quoted in an article in today's yeah. Washington Post about how railway strikes in, in the 19th century yeah. were absolutely right. historic in their implications yeah. and that the eight-hour right. workday was a result of that. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the, the the interesting parallel is that here today, I think the railway workers are kind of in the vanguard of of of, a, of a fighting an issue which 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 affects many many millions of other other American workers, um, and you know they're they're putting down a market for that. Well, in the 19th century, of course, the railroads were the the great industry of the country, um, and the, the railroad workers were the largest industrial labor force uh, uh, period uh, in the country, uh, and um, the uh, they were you know between 1877 when there was a very violent and uh, dramatic strike that burned down 
you know, the rail yards in Pittsburgh and stop traffic, you know, all over the from the Mississippi to the east. Um, we've had the, the, from there was a, basically one major uh, uh, national rail strike every decade from the 1870s, 80s, 90s on uh, through the First World War. And, you know, the, the what was called the labor question, uh, the railroad workers were at the center of that. And um, and of course, they had a lot of uh, power because railroads were, were, were even more essential then than they are today. And so they were the leader. They were the leaders of the working class. And and eventually the government uh, had to step in. And the first eight hour day for private sector workers in a big industry was mandated in 1916 uh, by the federal government. Uh, the federal government also nationalized the railroads <laughs> during First World War and continued afterwards for a few years uh, because the uh, they were they, they had no faith in railroad management and the workers were quite militant. Uh, the first collective bargaining law that was set up by the government uh, for private sector workers uh, uh, was the, the the Railway Labor Act of 1926, um, which now covers the, the airlines. By the way, it has good and bad features. Uh, I should say it. It, can, it allows for the postponement of strikes, but on the other hand, it also allow, um, allows for industry-wide bargaining. Um, and this was uh, this preceded the Wagner Act by nine years, which was finally passed in 1935. So the railroad workers were, for many years, many decades, the vanguard of the American working class. And uh, and and that you know that was that was the uh, and, and the and the solution to the railroad problem to, to the labor problem on the railroads was was kind of the solution to the to to uh, problems in general in the society in general almost. Well, you were suggesting that they're still the vanguard and that they well, should they are, in fact go on strike. Smaller, yeah, I mean there are a hundred thousand. I mean there are hundred and fifty thousand you know railroad workers. They they're a smaller group. Uh, the railroads are not as uh, they still carry about a third of all the freight. Which is a which is down from like eighty percent of all the freight in the nineteenth century, um, but you know, but no, I mean, uh, I, I I would they are strategically located, yes. And if you and if you think about workers in the entire logistics um, sub, uh, uh, supply chain, the longshore workers, the rail the railroad workers, the uh, seamen, you know, who who carry the um, the containers from China or someplace else. I mean, so you, here you have a, a strategically located work, workforce, um, which, you know, can make its weight felt. Now, the one missing ingredient there, of course, are the workers in the warehouses, not just Amazon, but all the others. And they are they are paid like, you know, one fifth what what uh, longshoremen and railroad workers are being paid. And so the, the next uh, uh, item on the on the agenda of the labor movement is to organize the entire logistics supply chain, and that includes the warehouses. And if we do that, we can have real changes in the society. I mean, a longshoreman make uh, you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year at least a year, and they can pretty much through their hiring hall control uh, a lot of the nature of the work. Well, if they can do it, other people can do it as well. Well, do you think, though, this deal that the uh, railway workers have gotten uh, from this negotiation that averted the national strike, will that be an example of well, the cloud it, of labor? Well, it's not a great – it's a compromise. It's a compromise. Mm-hmm. They, they, need, they need to thoroughly get rid of this entire this new scheduling policy. What they've done is they've modified it to allow more days off for, you know, sick days and things of that sort. But they need to get rid of the whole thing. Um, and uh, uh, and so it's a compromise. And again, the Dem- you know, the Biden 
you know, uh, is a pro is a pro union person. But but the consequence, but what it means to be pro union is what it means is you're going to have big strikes in this country and they will inconvenience some people. Yes. But 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 her, his job and that of other de- of other Democrats and labor people is to, is to say, yes, we're having a big strike. It, it, it you know, make shut down car production or shut down. But the point of it is it's going to create a more equitable and fair society. Uh, and we need to do that. That requires sacrifice sometimes. And and the and these strikes are a manifestation of that. So that's why I, I was in favor of and still am in favor of a nationwide rail strike to demonstrate the power of labor. That will be a very educational thing for tens of millions of young people who are thinking about unions right now. Well, Nelson Lichtenstein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome indeed. And again, I've been speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein, who is a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography on the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America politics, ideology, and imagination. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.